My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Pod. As always, we got a great show for you guys today. I say that every week, and every week, I motherfucking mean it. That's the truth, because me and Eric are always bringing the A-list nerdy insight to all the franchises and everything you guys love. Today, we're going heavy on Marvel. Why? Because it is the release of Eternals. Now, Eric and I have talked about Eternals quite a bit already on this podcast, so we won't dive too deep into our, our reviews again. More so, we're going to have some spoiler-heavy heavy talk, so wait until after you guys check out the movie to actually listen. Uh, but before that, Eric, we're going to go into our news as usual. Are you excited? Maybe not about the first topic as you are, but <laughs> we'll see. Okay, fair, fair. All right, the first topic book of boba fett trailer uh so book of boba fett i never thought a year ago i would be excited for it because i've never cared about boba fett at all but mando season two really got me on the train and i thought the first trailer was incredibly badass i like that they're expanding kind of the scope uh you know mando was the underworld with the conscience this is the kind of flip side of that the far seedier elements of the criminal uh, underworld and the power vacuum left by Jabba the Hutt that Boba Fett is going to be exploring. So I I really dig that. And I like that you and I have talked about this before. I always feel like Star Wars can expand on both accesses, not just stuffing more characters into the same franchise. I am excited for the future when we get out of the same 80 year timeline. But for now, I I thought the Boba Boba Fett trailer exceeded my expectations. In terms of the content, I guess I'm excited only because of what you said, right? Because of how the character was in Mando season two. I never really had a previous connection to or with him. The show obviously went a long way in doing that. But the trailer didn't do it for me in a few senses. My number one, which of being, are they spreading themselves too thin, right? Like, would a Boba Fett storyline be better served in Mando season three? Are they? I guess by the very nature of the size and the scope of the Star Wars world, they could expand and spin off as many plot lines as they want. But I'm just not sure Boba Fett, from what we've seen from him, is a character that has enough depth to carry a, an entire show. I'm not sure Tamara Morrison, is that correct? Yeah. Has enough charisma as a performing lead to carry a show. I guess I'm just worried about them taking elements out of Mando to spin them off on their own. But then those elements, which were additive to Mando, wind up not being strong enough to stand on their own. And that's kind of where I'm at with the show. Whereas like Mandalorian broke new ground and brought Star Wars to a new place. This very much feels like, hey, here's a spinoff. You know what I mean? (laughs) We're spinning this guy off just because we know you'll fucking watch. And that to me is where... And this is the never-ending debate about the IP and franchisification of our film and TV. But that is sort of the line that I feel like this is crossing. Now, I don't think that that's the case with all of the Star Wars shows that are going to be coming out in the next few years. As you and I have talked about, we're both hyped for Obi-Wan. We're even just hyped in concept for The Acolyte. But Obi-Wan stars Ewan fucking McGregor as Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi. You know what I mean? So it's a different ball game there. This is an example, I think. And maybe the next trailer will blow me away and I'll totally change my mind. But the trailer felt thin. And then therefore that made me worried about how thick the actual content is. I do get what you mean. I hear what you're saying. I think the counter to that and why I'm a little bit more optimistic, which is surprising for me, 
because I want to get out of this time period so badly is that because Boba Fett has such intrinsic connections to the original trilogy and because there's such a huge gap in his history post, you know, Return of the Jedi, there's a lot of support in place for a relatively flatter character to exist, whereas the Mandalorian had to establish and sustain interest in, you know, Din Djarin, which I think was actually a harder job to pull off. The degree of difficulty was harder. You know, for Boba, we can have a little bit of filling in the dots that connect to the original trilogy, that connect to right after... uh, So you're assuming that they are going to fill in the blanks of his past then? I would be shocked if there aren't a little bit of flashbacks or at least a little bit of, uh, you know, exposition and focus on how did he escape the Sarlacc pit? You know, what happened, you know, post Jabba's death? Like, did he ever run into Luke again? Things of that nature. I, I would be shocked if we don't get some of that. And that would definitely feeds into the future story. Well, and that would definitely give the series more bones. But from what this trailer showed, it was just like, hey, here's literally where we last left him and we're going to show you where he goes from here. And I'm just not really sure I care all that much about that but you combine in the elements from past films, then perhaps it's a more well-rounded series. Yeah. We'll say, we'll say I'm, I'm excited for what they're doing at the, at the very least, because I think they showed with Marvel that the small screen can be a place of great experimentation. Yeah, for sure. All right. Next one, Robert Downey Jr. And Matt Damon are reportedly in talks to join Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt in Christopher Nolan's J Robert Oppenheimer movie. So once again, putting together an A-list cast, but I was also super hyped on the casting announcements for Tenet, which underwhelmed. I think as we've learned, as we went along, great casts don't always equal great movies. Here, I'm much more confident because these are these are really big names and it's a smaller focus, a much simpler kind of gimmick, for lack of a better word, than Tenet. So I actually think collecting an ensemble A-list cast works better here for what is going to be probably an elevated biopic. Well, I don't think you compare the cast of this and the cast of Tenet. I mean, uh, it's not even in the same. I'm just saying I was really excited for, you know, Robert Pattinson, John David Washington, uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh. Um, she's the the talented actress who I've liked in many projects. Her name escapes me right now. Oh, is that Kirby? No, that's not Kirby. No, no. no. Oh, my God. She was in The Tale. She, she was in I think Widows. she's also. Oh, uh, Elizabeth Debicki. Yes, thank you. I, the name is Casey, so I was really excited for her. And I'm not saying they're the same A-list levels, but those, that was a, a talented cast that was thrilled on paper. And through no fault of their own, I think the movie, you know, is one of our least favorite Nolans. Do you think, though, that these casting choices are a direct response to how Tenet played out? Like, do you think that Nolan sort of feels a sense of, well, because this is going to be a biopic, which is probably the most, the least heady film he's made. And then you combine the fact that it's about, it's a war film without being a war film, right? Do you think that he felt the need to jam pack it with stars to get it over the line? No, I don't. Cause at the, at the end of the day, I think Christopher Nolan, who's a director I love is, is arrogant and secure enough to be like, you know what? Tenant did fine. And this one's going to do good as well. And I'm going to shoot for another Oscar nomination and all that. I, I don't think any of that, factors into his into his decision making i simply think he's looking for talented actors to fill out his cast people he thinks reflect the characters he's creating so real quick downey will play atomic energy commissioner lewis strauss who fought against oppenheimer and had his clearance revoked Interesting. and damon will play lieutenant general leslie groves the director of the manhattan project so i think 
even more interesting than getting Downey because he's worked with Damon before, albeit in a cameo surprise role in a film. But effective. Absolutely effective. But I definitely think that Damon is a more Nolan actor. Uh, he's a lower frequency, sort of a cooler head than a Downey who could be a very colorful screen grabbing presence. So I think even more interesting than casting Downey is casting Downey in a supporting role. Cause we haven't yeah. really seen him do that since like Zodiac, Zodiac. and he's fucking he in, great. Man. And he's fucking incredible in it. So, and I also like to see that Downey is maybe getting back to that side of himself. We haven't heard much from him since Doolittle, which I heard was terrible. Um, Sherlock Holmes three, he had posted a video earlier this year that definitely looked like him training for that film. And that is a franchise that I low-key love, but seeing him, even though it's a Nolan blockbuster, get back to like legitimate dramatic work, especially as the opposing force to both Murphy and Damon is fantastic for me. And that of all the things I've heard about this film, that is what I am most hyped for. And just on the flip side, Matt Damon looks like he was a lieutenant general in a different life. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's got that broad-shouldered, flat-faced seriousness. Yep, yep, yeah, yep, absolutely. All right, Netflix's mobile games launched in more than 190 countries Wednesday. The catch for now, subscribers can only access Netflix games via Android phones and tablets. Apple iOS support is coming in the next few months. Uh, Eric, you're not a gamer, correct? Uh, well, not a mobile gamer. I will say Fair. that. Yeah, I have never been a big phone game guy. Yeah, I've uh, only game I ever really played consistently was Clash of Clans, which was a great game. But I'm not a gamer in general, so I know this is a big deal for certain people who are excited about it. For us, I feel like it's a little bit. Uh, eh. I mean, I feel like it, this sort of reminds me of the Apple Arcade that they launched a few years ago, which I don't think ever really took off. So it will be interesting to see yeah. what Netflix thinks that they're going to be able to do different. I know that there's plans to plans to roll out ip involved games like stranger things type feels like a no-brainer it also speaks- i could talk for days about the industry implications but that is a positive right, for right. A well, I, I was just gonna say it, it also speaks to how netflix sees themselves for a while they were the people who mailed you dvds and then they became the place where you would binge watch shows and then they like to fancy themselves a legitimate movie studio where they put out blockbuster films and award-winning projects but now we're seeing them transition towards just being media yeah they are all encompassing yeah well like an almost not quite the same but like a google type Mm -hmm. presence yeah all right donkey kong solo film is reportedly in development with seth rogan set to star uh, you know, I'm I'm all for video game IP getting second chances and, and trying to mine that because it's such a rich territory for future franchises. I don't know anything about, you know, Donkey Kong. I don't know anything about this project, but yeah, sure. I'll see Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong on I paper. Su- that sounds fine. I mean, I suppose this speaks to their confidence in the Mario film. Then. Which we're going to talk about in a second, actually. Because, I mean, I definitely think the Seth Rogen donkey kong casting is i mean perfect it really doesn't get better than that <laughs> but but given the reaction to chris pratt being cast as mario i wonder if that sour taste carries over into people actually going to see the film granted it is for children but do children really know from mario these days i don't know i can't speak to that but I guess if there was a character to spin off, it's this one who's a no-brainer. And then Seth, for him, like I don't think any of the work he's done in the last five-plus years has excited me at all. 
Um, I liked American Pickle a lot, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? Just because of the whole Jewish yeah, it's thing? A, it, no, it's his most mature <laughs> film. I mean, obviously that helps, but genuinely, I think it's his most mature, like emotionally honest film with actually yeah. a, a thesis rather than just like, hey, watch this man child grow up. Right, right. Well, which, which there's nothing wrong with, but this so one guess, actually has I, something to say. I, I guess outside of that, and he's had a book come out and he's been doing a weed thing. So obviously he has different interests and straight comedy films at this point but i can't remember the last time i saw his name attached to something and i was like oh fuck yeah i can't wait for that shot was pretty good but yeah my dad likes that one and i've heard it's cute so so. all right according to our friends at the diz insider taika watiti is set to direct disney's tower of terror film which is going to be executive produced and potentially scar star scarlett johansson another taika watiti film was also announced this week he's doing an adaptation of the inkle which yes, is Inco, a fucking a hilarious word. <laughs> so, listen, long story short, Taika Waititi's name across film and television is now attached to more than like a dozen upcoming projects. I can guarantee you only about half of them or less are probably actually going to get made. But regardless, this is the hardest working man in Hollywood right now. And clearly Disney's golden goose. All I care about is getting the show on the road with Next Goal Wins. Yeah, which they I guess they got to f- solve the armor ha- army hammer problem of it all. But the fact is, it finished production almost two years ago. Yeah. So, you know, let's go. Yeah, tired Thor, Love and Thunder, wired. Next goal wins. Fast bend, <laughs> fast bend back, baby. I've been telling you. Fast bend back. I like it. Uh, Sophia Butella is set to star in Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, which you discussed with Zack uh, Snyder. I tried recently. to, I tried to snake it out of him so badly, and it ended up going to fucking Variety or something. God damn. You know what? I give, I give you twenty five percent of that scoop. <laughs> uh, Station Eleven. Finally, this upcoming limited series for HBO Max that is based on a book that kind of takes place before, during, and after the collapse of society due to a deadly virus. It's coming in December. I personally think it looks great. It is show run by Patrick Somerville, who did Maniac and, and a couple other good shows. It's directed by Hiro Mirai, who's the director of a lot of great episodes of Atlanta. It's got a really nice starry cast. So I'm really excited for this one. What a trailer, huh? Right. I mean, what, a, damn good. what a great trailer. Interesting that it's an HBO Max show and not an HBO show. I'm fascinated by how they make those little. Well, this one was one of their earliest acquisitions for HBO Max. And like the production got delayed due to the pandemic and everything. I'm I'm curious. Do we know how HBO Max rolls out shows yet? It it depends. It's different for each one. Like uh, certain shows, they have done like two episodes at a time, then then two, then one, one. They've done three. They did for generation they did, or no, for industry, they dropped ha- the back half of the season all at once before it had finished rolling out weekly on HBO. So they are experimenting, which I love because the freedom of streaming allows you to explore different avenues to potential new successful release strategies. So I love that they've been doing it, but most likely it's going to be some sort of weekly release. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is right up my alley. I've said it a thousand times on this show. This looks to be the definition of romantic sci-fi. I will say it's very grounded though. It's not, there's not much sci-fi. I want to tell yeah, you. Well, I, I, and when I say sci-fi, I just mean sci- sci-fi elements. You know what I mean? It's like, like a dystopian future. Like, or you yeah. could even qualify eternal sunshine, right? Because there's a Definitely. sci-fi technology to it, but it doesn't take place in space or anything like that. I will say that uh, when I looked at the book and found out that it was centered on a traveling group of actors, that made me a little concerned of, how, well, have you read this book? 
Yeah, I've read this book. So is there like a self-serious, we must preserve art to it? Because that would definitely bother me. <laughs> it, it's it's more so, listen, there there is that, but it, it's not really about the art. It's, ju- it's just about trying to maintain any semblance of humanity in the apocalypse. And it is, when we, I've said this in tweets before, to me, and this is kind of a douchey way to describe it, but it is the philosophizer's apocalypse. And I say that quoting uh, White Goodman from uh, from Dodgeball. Now he's a philosophizer. Right, right. Because, because it is. It is definitely like a, a very meditative look. It's not an explosive, action-packed apocalypse story like The Walking Dead. It's imagine The Walking Dead, and even though there's, there's violence, it's more so people kind of wrestling with the types of people they were and the types of people humanity is going to become and it's you know slow moving but very deliberate very beautiful very poetic and very much character focused mm-hmm. less so focused on the troop itself but the the, the people who, who, are, who are there right. and then there's a ton of characters outside the troop that have nothing to do with them that get some focus yeah i am definitely this is not something that i saw coming it's not something that i knew was in the works but as upon seeing the trailer and hearing your praise for it absolutely hyped for it. and i think it comes out kind of soon december yeah something. in december and, and i'd also just like to toot my own horn slightly here uh originally they were looking at dev patel for for a role oh. and i i know i know someone who was close to production on this on this show they were looking at dev patel but you know the scheduling and the money and everything it just didn't work out and i suggested to this person hey i think himesh patel from yesterday is a really good actor you guys should look at him for that role. And a couple of weeks later, they're like, "Hey, we Hamesh Patel is gonna gonna star in the show." Is he so the guy I, in the? Is he the guy in the first clip buying like very ta- the groceries? Very talented, uh, yeah, he's he's a very talented British actor with uh, Southeast Asian uh, ancestry. Uh, so you know, just a, I, I think someone who's popped up in a lot of different projects. He's he's in Tenet very briefly. Who's pretty good. And so uh, I suggested that and a couple of weeks later he got the no part. kidding. Fuck yeah. So I'm I'm gonna t- I, you know what? Give me one percent of his salary. Producing credit. Yeah yeah. Come on. Where is that? All right. Let's finish up uh, news. The last couple bits. Uh, new Morbius trailer. Uh, I also want to say I saw House of Gucci. The embargo hasn't lifted, but Jared Leto is also in that. We're going to talk about that next week. Okay. Fa- oh what, boy. What did you oh, What boy. did you think of uh, What did you think of the Morbius trailer? A movie you and I have consistently been down on. Well, I tweeted. I said, "Oh damn, Tyrese is in this too. This may legitimately be the worst movie of all time. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait. I'm actually weirdly excited. Seeing what they pulled off with Venom two makes me wonder if that sense oh, of se- self-awareness of how silly they are will continue in this film. I thought the trailer was ri- ridiculous. I-, I don't think it looks compelling in the traditional sense of the word, but in the so bad it's good sense, I'm fucking gassed up about it. I didn't Darryl like Leto was so Venom fucking too. terrible. He's so bad. And now here he is leading a Dracula superhero franchise. It's a match made I- in heaven. I didn't like Venom 2. I didn't I didn't get the same so bad it's it's good vibes that you did. But it looks like my hate watch of Morbius and if it's good great, but it, my potential hate watch of Morbius could be entertaining. It could be. We're going to say. Now I did now obviously a lot of people have talked about its various Spider-Man universe connections and how all over the map they are so that so the Oscorp logo is the one from the Andrew Garfield films. The Spider-Man mural that has murderer painted on it, which I also tweeted. People think that that has to do with the death of... Mysterio. Yeah, but I would find it far more cooler if it had to do with the death of Norman Osborn in the original. That um, is that the original Spider-Man costume? Yes, Because yes. all the costumes look the same to me. No, yes, honest. it is. It is. And then 
And then, of course, Keaton pops up, which is a link to the MCU and the Daily Bugle, which is the logo from the original films. It mentions Rhino, who, of course, we saw in the Garfield series and Black Cat, who we have not seen at all. So it's all over the fucking map how heavily it leans into the uh, wasn't wasn't black cat played by um uh, jen urso in in one moment of the garfield movies was maybe i don't know or spider-man 3 i can't remember she i think i think i think she she popped up for one (laughs) second it it was the character's name the character who becomes black right okay maybe maybe you're right then yeah yeah but, but that's, uh, you know, again, we've never really seen it. So I guess how all of that plays out will be pretty cool. But I will be uniquely intrigued if it ties in at like actual story elements from the other Spider-Man worlds into it beyond just the surface level of winks and nods. All right, sticking with Chris Pratt, Pratt he's been cast to voice Garfield in the new animated film. And that comes, like you mentioned, after he was cast in Mario earlier this year and voiced Emmett in the Lego movie and the brother in Onward. So he's got a lot of animated projects on his resume uh i gotta be honest i've never given a shit about garfield i don't understand the fascination with the ip i mean the last one was what the bill murray right like maybe i don't know i wouldn't know can't say i give a fuck uh, but again chris pratt voicing an italian character sort of so i don't know what his upset garfield's not italian but he loves italian food that's his whole thing so I don't know. Like lasagna. I, 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 I kind of, right. I, as much as I dislike the IPification, I respect actors getting their bag. And animated work is probably the sweetest of bags since it requires the least amount of work. And if you look at the fucking Hotel Transylvania films, which has the fourth one coming out in a year, you could just stack <laughs> bread for like a decade. So I can't hate on that part of it. Yeah, I would love a voice animation role. Come on, Hollywood, get at us. All right, then finally, before we move on to Eternals and our MCU roster building on a budget, which is going to be fun, uh, Ted Lasso season three, it's eyeing to start production in early 2022. I mean, love this show. Cannot wait for season three. Give me all the Ted Lasso. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do we know if season four has been greenlit yet or? Not yet. No, okay. Yeah. And you got to think maybe that probably means they could turn it around before the end of the year, too. So I'm in. in, Also, of note, Ted Lasso recently signed a deal with the Premier League itself, which will allow them to license the logos and the players and stuff. So expect so expect a more very realistic Premier League soccer storyline in season three. As someone who does not care about soccer whatsoever, even I, by the end of season two, which I still love, was like, I think Ted Lasso needs more soccer in it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think my biggest complaint with Ted Lasso season two is that Ted Lasso season one, for all of its uniqueness and its genuine kindness, it was a largely formulaic sports movie story. A remember the Titans' tale of a coach who unites the ragtag team. Obviously not through the prism of racism, but regardless, this is a tried and true sports movie arc, right? And season one had that, the rises and falls of being on a team. Season two really didn't do that. Oh, they woke up one day and they were like, one more win and Brentford are, or not Brentford. Um, Richmond. Richmond are back in the top flight. Yeah. And it's like, when like wait, did that... didn't they start with eight ties? When did, yeah, that happen? when did that happen? So I would definitely like a renewed focus on the actual footballing because I am a soccer fan. But regardless, just in a storytelling, I think that the Ted Lasso formula works better when it stays true to what it really is. And that's not a sitcom. It's a sports movie. 
All right. Well, I'm looking forward to discussing it with you when season three arrives. Yep. Also, real quick, speaking of Apple TV, have you checked out Finch yet? I, I, I wanted to, but with the move and everything, I just didn't have time. No, I've, yeah, I haven't I've checked heard, it, it comes out today. Uh, I've heard yeah. it's I've heard it's all right. Tom Hanks, similar to uh, Seth Rogen, seems to vaguely be mailing it in these days. But I've <laughs> I, I've I've heard he's great in this. So. I had the screener. I wanted to watch it. You know, it's a Tom Hanks movie, but I just ran out of time. Yeah. All right, Eric, so that'll do it for news. Let's run into our Eternals thoughts. Like we said before, we've talked about it a bit. Here we're going to dive into more spoiler territory. So if you guys haven't seen the movie, please wait to see it. Then come back because we also have an awesome interview with Don Lee, who plays Gilgamesh in the film, which will be at the end of this. Uh, Just quickly, you know, our our 30-second reviews of the movie – Right now, I believe it's Rotten Tomatoes scores in the 40s. And you and I have consistently said that Rotten Tomatoes should not be the end-all be-all because it is a very reductive binary method of grading movies. Having said that, I, I guess I'm just surprised to see it so low. I believe Eternal's greatest strength is that it remixes the MCU formula and it trades in the very relatable and familiar human drama for something mythic and godlike. These unbelievable characters of legend experiencing existential crises and kind of bumping up against their own destiny and their own purpose and what happens to creations when they become creators themselves. It's a lot of big thematic questions that Eternals wrestles with. And at two hours and 37 minutes, it doesn't always succeed in answering them. It doesn't always succeed in making sharp thematic connections and it doesn't always succeed when it's overflowing with ideas and locations and characters and it definitely threatens to be too much but overall i felt this was a really emotionally charged character specific marvel movie that pushes it into more cosmic directions while really showing something that hasn't been done before in the mcu and chloe Zhao creates this luscious tapestry of locations locales uh, 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 unbelievable, you know, costuming and coloring. So overall, I really liked it. It's a top 10 MCU film for me. And I, I guess we're in the minority here because, hey, I, I like these characters. I want to see more from these characters and I want to see more from the implications that Eternal sets up for the MCU moving forward. Yeah, I've already reviewed this film on this show and I had a bit of a rant last week where I sort of tied, <laughs> it was a good t- one. tied some threads between that and Dune and how I think the reactions to them both doing the same thing in a sense are different, which is strange. Um, but you touched on it and I've brought this up on the show a few times. Characters to me are the number one thing that I look for in films. And this delivered that when you leave the movie thinking, Oh, I liked Druig was a standout and Fastos was a standout and Kingo and even Dane Whitman. And the list goes on and on. And when again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, when Gilgamesh dies, and I had told this to you a few weeks ago. I, I yelped out like, no, you know what I mean? Like I literally not on purpose, not as a joke, not as a bit. I was watching it as in, a fan and invested in the theater. Fan. And I was, and I was, and I enjoyed that character and his sort of how, like he was sort of the Eternals general consensus favorite. You know what I mean? Like they all seem to yeah. like, like him the most. Maybe you only get there from taking the time to develop the character. So while I think that has contributed to the bloatedness of the plot, I also think that that is necessary in order to, you know, the the Avengers was like the what the sixth or seventh MCU film. They all had original solo films first. So Eternals is sort of the reverse 
engineer of that, wherein they had to commit the time in this original film. You could almost make the case that you already know Eternals Part 2 will likely be shorter and more in line with the with the runtime of the average MCU right. film. So while I hear the complaints about the about the combination of the bloatedness and the runtime, I think that those things also worked out in terms of character. Now, this leads us into the next point of our discussion where how does it expand the MCU? Now, you're going to touch on more plot-wise. I want to touch on the fact that it expands the MCU thematically and tonally, right? Steve Rogers was heralded for his undying sense of duty, but Icarus's character poses the question of what happened when that blind faith and sense of duty is taken too far, right? So I think that yeah. that's a compelling new angle of heroism that the MCU hasn't really tackled where it's almost zealotry, not quite zealotry, but you become so believe, uh, entrenched in your cause yes. that you're unable to see the true scope of it. Icarus eventually does. And guess what that's called? Character development. That, <laughs> there you go. And that is why I really enjoyed this film. So I, th you I think even to that point, it's, it's character development closely knotted to a central theme, which is the debate around sacrificing for the greater good. At what point does the scale tip into an uneven direction? And his journey is very intrinsically linked to that theme, which is when those things can be intertwined in storytelling, that's when you get the best stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you combine the the scope of it all, whereas like the decisions that they make and the way in which they ultimately lean in this argument you know, it's not just about saving New York City. It impacts humanity as the as a whole. So it makes all of those choices all the more heady, right? And that's why I think people are sort of underrating the fact that, yes, it was a dialogue and exposition dump, but that Modern wasn't just exposition. <laughs> but that wasn't just to serve the purpose of the plot. It was to it was to layer the film with the proper character beats and emotions that you needed for the third act to pay off. Um, and I never felt that it was hard to follow, even if maybe some of the flashback structure halts momentum and is a bit start, false start and stop to its detriment. But I, I never felt like, and some people are, are saying this and they're entitled to their opinion. I didn't think it was overly complicated or too layered. No. I felt it was still relatively straightforward. It just had a lot of moving parts. Uh, and I time. think when you combine the timeline jumps with the globe trotting nature of it, there is a very whiplash element to it but that's something that we've come to expect from big blockbuster ip so i wasn't really that caught off in that regard but one more thing that i want to point to as it as it's sort of taken the mcu in a new way tonally is that romance right yes there's yeah. been the much discussed sex scene which is maybe a pump or two max right <laughs> but, I, but i like that they put it in there absolutely and i wrote about it today where it, it it's context, right? In the context of comparing it to basic instinct, yeah, it's fucking prude. But in the context of Marvel, it's obviously progress. So that's why I'm okay with it in that regard. But more so the romance, right? When you look at the likes of, like, Cersei and Icarus begin this film broken up. When you look at the big romances that the MCU has had so far, you look at Tony and Pepper or Cap and Peggy or Peter Quill and Gamora. They're almost fairy tale esque right? Either... Frankly, outside of Pac uh, Peggy and, and Steve, none of them, to me, brings an ounce of heat or sensuousness or romanticism. It's well, simply I'd a plot say when, when Peter Quill is wooing Gamora <sighs> in, in, in that first one with like the headphones, 
it's organic. It's good. But I, I would say this, that, that Eternals brings some much needed sensuousness and, and romanticism to the, to Marvel, which is very sex purified, you know? Absolutely. But also to that end, I'm, I'm trying to say beyond the physical representation of it, which you and I are both saying is a good thing. The thematics of it, whereas romances that I had just laid out, Cap and Peggy, Pepper and Tony, Peter Quill and Gamora, they're fairy tale-esque in the sense of either it, it was A, either love at first sight in the case of um, Cap and Peggy. B, it was the classic butt heads at first and then <laughs> fall in love, i.e. Peter Quiller and Gamora. Or C, it was the, oh, we're BFFs. And now we realize, oh, we're actually in love, i.e. Tony and Pepper. That's all formulaic surface level bullshit, really. Whereas this argues that like, it's not this fairy tale type dynamic. It 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 could blind you. Cersei and 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 all of the Eternals are blind to Icarus's true nature because of the love that they have for him, right? If they were observing it a bit more objectively, particularly Cersei, who likes to, or even Ijack, who are supposed to be these emotionally intuitive characters, they they're completely missing the fact that their boy is like a borderline fascist, right? A borderline cosmic fascist. So I think it also begs the question of, while I'm all in for romantic sci-fi and a romance across thousands of years, it doesn't paint the romance between the two of them and all that good of a light. And I also think that that's new ground. But I would also say on the flip side, and in a good way, not a criticism, actually in a good way, it is fairytale-esque that what ultimately saves the entire planet is Icarus's love for Cersei. That's what saves everybody. And frankly, love, the idea of this monogamous connection is the defining trait of humanity. So in his own subconscious way, he learned and picked up on something that was the most human of all, despite always thinking that he was above us. And that's a beat that I'm all in on, right? When Yeah, when oh he, yeah, no, I'm saying it is a positive. Yeah, when you take a guy who was thinking so cosmically in such a grand sense to boil down the decision to one person, again, that's character growth. And that's what you want when you go to these films. You don't, you know, by the time that film ends, I'm not sure you really know how to feel about Icarus. And I think that that's a good thing. You know, or to even defend him to a point, he was born into this role. He didn't know better. Once he, yes, he almost ended the world in the process, but he eventually got to the right conclusion. Icarus, more like Dickerus. Oh, <laughs> snap, nailed him. That's why y'all come to the post of the pod for <laughs> jokes like that. Mm-hmm. All right, so for, for how it expands the Marvel Cinematic Universe from a little bit more of a, a plot perspective, I like that it gives us a more personal introduction to the Celestials. We've only seen them in one brief exposition scene in Guardians of the Galaxy, and its sequel where Ego was a Celestial but that didn't really have much to do with the greater universe. And here we kind of have a, a personification of them through Arashem, who is the, you know, six-eyed red Goliath in space, who is basically pulling all these strings of the movie. And we discover that there are any number of Eternals created by the Celestials spread out across the universe, and their job is to protect life and help it grow. But their aims aren't necessarily altruistic because Celestials embryonic celestials are kind of born from deep within a planet's core and they feed and grow off the life force to emerge into existence. And that destroys the planet in the process. But these newly birthed celestials also then create and seed life throughout the universe, which goes back to what are we willing to sacrifice for the greater good? And what is the proper equation in terms of destruction and recreation throughout the universe? So 
the fact that there is a potential army of superpowered Eternals, hundreds and maybe thousands spread across the universe is very, very uh, interesting to me. And I, I think hope the- not to throw you off your role here, but when you think about what you just said out loud, right, and how unbelievably dense that is, <laughs> you can understand the complaints that people are having in that regard. But to which I say, just because it's different, it doesn't mean it's bad. Just because you're being forced to sort of swallow heavier concepts and terms doesn't mean that it's doesn't mean that it's necessarily dense in terms of boring. It just means it's dense in terms of the mental energy that you have to commit to understand it. Everything you just said is a fucking it's a shitload of cosmic jargon, right? <laughs> but once you wrap your head around it, it turns into a compelling story. I agree. And I think it could have been denser if they had then gone out and shown us examples from across the universe. Then you're dealing with a very intricate, complicated web of characters and implications. But instead, they boil it down and use the Eternals as a side door entry into the larger kind of cosmic hierarchy. And I think they do it in a pretty straightforward way that makes sense, that's absorbable. And I think what's interesting, too, in terms of potential greater world implications, we now have the, a husk, the stone husk, the stone corpse of an aborted celestial chilling in the ocean of Earth, you know? I think that could potentially lead into the introduction of Namor and Atlantis getting upset in Black Panther Wakanda forever, in which he is uh, either rumored or officially reported to be making his debut. Oh, did you come up with that on your own or have you been seeing that float out there? Because that's a good one, B. This this was a conversation with a, a DM conversation with a Marvel fanatic in which we were just batting around theory. So it was kind of both of ours. I, I really say. like that. Absolutely. It, it would make sense. Now, I also like that, again, Celestials are the most powerful beings we've seen in the MCU, you know, much more powerful than the Infinity Stones, more impo- powerful than the TVA. And, and all of what we've seen in the MC, so MCU so far essentially flows from their creation. So they are, by proxy, God. They are the gods of this universe. And so challenging them, as they now have done and, and setting up Eternals too, is going to be very interesting in terms of how much control over our own fates and destinies and our own abilities do we have? Or are these omnipotent beings uncrossable? You know, can they just rewrite history as they deem fit? So I'm ext- I'm excited to see that. And do we think that this, this sort of bridge into godliness is how the MCU will eventually work in Galactus? I think potentially. And I asked the person I was DMing with that, who's a deep comic book nerd. And as everyone listening knows, you know, Eric and I aren't so up on the comics. I'm like, can a Celestial be Galactus? And he just sent me one comic panel where it was six six or seven Celestials all fighting Galactus at the same time and looking like they were losing. So I was like, oh, shit. Right, yeah, okay. This is cool, cool. okay. Now, another potential connection, the severed head of the Celestial, nowhere that we see in Guardians of the Galaxy. In the comics, that Celestial was killed by the same weapon that Gore the God Butcher apparently uses in Thor Love and Thunder. So maybe they're going to create this this whole arc around Gore killing that Celestial as well as what we think, our fun little theory that he'll immediately kill Russell Crowe's uh, uh, Zeus or whoever. Whoa, don't give me any credit for that one. That's all you, Doug. Well, we we will see. So I I think it's cool. Uh, I also like just in terms of power scale, to me, Eternals makes it clear that the these guys, these Eternals, would just mollywop the Avengers in a fight. I think Thor and, Hike, Thor and Hulk would put up probably a pretty decent fight against Icarus and Gilgamesh and Athena, but I think pound for pound, the Eternals have the Avengers numbers. You know, uh, in the comics, Cersei doesn't even need to touch an object to change it into molecules, so she could just think in her head, Doctor Strange and Scarlet Witch are now a 
pile of VHS tapes and poof, <laughs> like it's over. So I, I, I like that they're introducing even more heavy hitters just in a different way and not necessarily. But I wonder physical. if for that reason that those two groups of characters never cross over. Like, I don't think that this is going to be a Guardians of the Galaxy showing up in Infinity War type sitch because aren't like you just said, the power dynamics too out of whack. How could you possibly compare what Spider-Man has got going on to what they've <laughs> got going on, you know? It's so true, but they love playing with the power scale. You know, like, uh, you know, Captain America can can uh, struggle lifting a helicopter, but, like, is somewhat holding his own against Thanos? I'm like, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> All right, so moving on, who is your number one breakout character? Because this is very much an ensemble piece. All right, I think I'm going to blow your fucking mind here with a fantastic right. answer. Peel, peel back my cap. So uh, when I had tweeted my first thoughts of the film, I thought that Kingo... Fastos and Druig were all scene stealers in their own right, in their own way, right? They weren't like Kingo, of course, brought comedy. Fastos brought a little bit of intellectual weight. And then Druig, I think, who you and I were both surprised by how much we like him, was just sort of a force of charisma that I didn't really expect. Um, Keegan, man, killing it. But in terms of breakout, right? And when you say breakout, I think of it in, in the sense of this is step one for them. And I expect big things from them going forward. In that light, I don't see how it's anyone but Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman. Now, first, he strikes me, and I've said this on the show a few times, the perfect character to get his own Disney Plus show. Right at the right level of power and fame, both the character and actor. Clearly, he was a side thought in this film with more to do in the following films, but in, in the context of Eternals, he was barely in it, right? But you could still tell that they were setting him up for bigger things. Second, despite his short screen time, Kit Harrington was quite fucking charming. I thought it was a good character. I really sort of enjoyed him. Maybe he that deals makes- with the biggest reveal in relationship history quite well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, check out that floating godhead in the sky. Oh, and there goes my girlfriend. Well, I guess it's go time to touch my family's sword. Like, uh, he's very well adjusted all things considered so i really yeah so despite the limited screen time i did enjoy the character but third of all most importantly he seems like he's gonna be in the blade moon knight werewolf by night corner of the mcu which is not only get to that more later in this podcast which is not only new ground for the franchise but it's a corner of the mcu that you and i have long said we're probably the most excited for So those three factors combine with not just subtext, like the implicit text that they have planned for him going forward, I think makes him the breakout character. Also, as I've said a few times, the idea of a knight superhero is just very fucking cool and something that I want to see. Yeah, there's something about the medieval baseline nature of it clashing with not only modern earth times but also cosmic deities it is so out of place out of time anachronistic in this wonderful way yeah so for me i am going with barry keegan's druig not in the sense of him necessarily being a scene stealer like kumal nanjiani's kingo or brian tyree's henry henry's fastos even though i think barry keegan is just a fantastic actor but more in the sense that i think he holds the character the most interesting perspective So with the ability to control mind, Druig is wrestling with the fact that he could basically eliminate all violence among humanity. He can save our species from our own self-destructive behavior. 
but he's not allowed to due to Arashem's, you know, uh, uh, commands. And Selma Hayek's Ajak also correctly points out that removing free will from humanity would render us no longer hu- human. And that's a huge consideration as well. Now, I still think Druig is coming from a place of care, a kind of almost paternal yearning for protection, but his frustration and his disillusionment with his, their mission pushes him to be the first one to break apart from the Eternals, his, his surrogate family. And he starts his own commune of sorts in self-exile for untold years. And so I think someone who is a little bit darker, someone who is controlling human minds, which at face value is not good, but has this greater sense of protection and care for the species. He is at once someone who has lost all hope and is an empty vessel and is also this vehicle for future hope, for humanity's betterment. And I think he displays that wonderfully and walks that tightrope wonderfully. And I just think that's a perspective I could have sat with for an entire movie, an entire show, just my, you know, just the philosophical questions that Druig represents. Plus to that point, I think he adds a great layer of the own mental weight that you would carry with knowing that you have the power to fix these things, but either can't or won't and how that would weigh on you over the course of thousands and thousands of years, seeing atrocity occur over and over again. I I like that. I like that a lot. So Barry Keegan, if you're listening, man, we're big fans, dude. Who's also going to be in the Batman in a yet undisclosed role. So he's killing it lately. He's been in a lot of great things. Yeah. All right, so oh, I, and so I've was, seen him on the uh, press tour, and a few weeks ago, it was, or months ago, it was reported he got attacked in a knife fight, and he's looking yeah. pretty good, so that's good. Good for him, man. Good for him. How, how dare they fuck with Druid? I know, right? <laughs> All right, so at two hours and 37 minutes, Eternals is one of the longest MCU movies ever, and to me, someone who, who is praising it, I do think it drags in certain areas. I do think it's bloated in certain areas. I think there is fat to to trim to make it a little bit more of a digestible product. So if you agree, and you don't have to, is there are there any elements you would have cut to help the running time, to help the story flow? Is it weird for me to also say Dane Whitman? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's surprising. I'll say that. Not just because I think the character would be better served in a show, right? And not only because he literally did not have much to do it in this film other than uh, give Cersei a further tie to mankind. But I wonder if the dynamic between Icarus and Cersei would have been more compelling if instead of beginning the film broken up, they begin the film together and come apart throughout the course of the film. I wonder if that would have served their dynamic better, which then also adds more dramatic weight to the A plot and trims off some time. And I think there's always room in the MCU to introduce another character for future storylines. So had they gone that route, it's not like they couldn't find a place for Dane Whitman. Right. Yeah. So for me, I'm going with uh, Sprite. Now, on one hand, I very much understand and appreciate her arc. You know, she is stuck in the body of a child for thousands of years. And that is great motivation for wanting to bring about change and an end to their mission because it is its own form of torture and it differs from the other characters in in great ways but ultimately her arc concludes with her becoming human and mortal at Cersei's touch and I think that's there to reinforce the connection to humanity the value of being human and I think when you look at it from what purpose she's serving, that is something thematically we already get from Cersei, from Fastos, and other characters who already have these roots and connections in the human world. And while I realize that Sprite didn't know there was a way out of their mission, there, was, there wasn't another alternative, I still feel as if her heel turn 
going from living with Cersei and sharing the strongest bond with her to literally stabbing her in the back six days later was very out of character and hard to believe, despite the eons of bottled up frustration she's been dealing with. So I like the character. I like the actress. I like the intention. I just felt it added unnecessary well, lo- blood. Love will make you do crazy things, though. And she loves sure. uh, Icarus. Yeah, you know, I mean, listen, if, if I can't have sex, can't have family, can't do anything, I'm probably stabbing someone, too. But, me, you man. know, it, it, was a, it was a big jump. And I think yeah, it, it yeah, ultimately yeah. culminates in something we've already learned. All right, what's your favorite moment of the sh- of the movie altogether? This is not my favorite, but I do just want to make note of it. I thought the Eternals versus Icarus was one of the more unique third act set pieces that the MCU has had. I really enjoyed seeing each Eternal use their unique power. And then to a lesser extent, just the brief moment of Icarus versus Thena was one of those like boxing match-esque moments where you can't help but get hot hype for it. Or like, you know, the rock versus Stone Cold where it's like, even though you knew Thena was the underdog, you still knew that she was like nice enough to hold her own for a bit. And that right. sort of gave it that, uh, that sort of prize fight type standoff to me. Now, I'd say my favorite favorite was probably just the Amazon sequence in general. One, because it's a lot of Druig who you and I have both pointed out we really enjoyed. I believe he's the last member of the team that they have to go get. So they're once again all together for the first time in I, what 5,000 years or 2,000 years or something like that. Long so time. not only is Druig sharing his new perspective of what they've learned, but the other characters are doing the same thing. Second, I thought that Kingo's valet filming stuff, <laughs> comedy beat that really worked for me, particularly in the context of this Amazon battle. And then third, the battle itself, the action was different from what we usually see in the MCU in terms of the heroes weren't really working to they they were trying to save each other, but they weren't working together. So it was kind of like an every man for themselves free for all, almost to continue with the wrestling analogy, like a Royal Rumble type thing. Right. Monsters popping up all over the place and. Druig is using the humans to, to wield shotguns. You got Icarus <laughs> flying in the air, doing his Superman thing. Cersei's powers grow, and she's able to literally change the DNA of the Deviant. Gilgamesh dies, in which what I think was a very emotional moment. So there was just a lot of play in this maybe 20, 30-minute stretch that I thought was the film's best. I can get definitely get behind that. I think that was a really good element. And then I think it maybe sometimes goes off the rails in the third act a little bit. And this is kind of the last like big gasp of impressiveness before that happens. Yeah. All right. So for me, I'm actually going with Icarus's suicide at the end of the movie flies into the sun. Eric, as you know, as I've written about, as I've talked about, I have been saying for years that Marvel has been pretty consistently willing to sidestep real consequences for their character actions. You know, instead the franchise usually bends over backwards to ameliorate past mistakes of our uh, protagonists, whether that be, you know, Black Widow or something. They they love rewarding characters for repeating the same mistakes over and over, like in Doctor Strange or Spider-Man Homecoming. And they really just always get a pass for saving the day, even though they continue the problematic behavior that got them in trouble in the first point. So I- I've always kind of bristled against that across multiple MCU projects. But here... And what is easily, I think, the darkest and most mature moment, perhaps, in MCU history, Icarus realizes the totality of his own failure. You know, mm-hmm. 
how badly he has betrayed the only family he's ever known. And he decides to kill himself. <laughs> flies into the sun because he cannot live with his own choices. He cannot bear the weight of his own betrayal. And death does not automatically equate to thematic significance. But here, I thought it was a very poetic meditation on morality, accountability, and even cosmic destiny to a certain degree. So I really love that moment. It actually reminded me too of Avatar, The Legend of Korra in the first season, spoilers for this older show, where at the end, the season one villain kills himself and his brother because he knows they've just done such horrible things. And I remember thinking like, Jesus, Jesus this is this is a, a show and now for Eternals, a movie essentially geared towards kids for the most part. And they're really wrestling with some weighty concepts and some real consequences. So I thought that that elevated it to a new level for me. I thought he was just going into exile in space. No, he's like, I'm ending it. I also think it was a great way to tie the bow on the whole lore building that they were doing, how each of these... Eternals represent a figure in some like uh, Athena. The Greeks change it to Athena, like stuff like that. Yeah, that is the story of Icarus. No, yep. So yep. I just flew think, too close to the sun. Yeah. So I just think just to tie a nice bow on that that they had been threading throughout the whole film was sharp. great call. Great call. Eric. I, I'm not gonna lie, I did not pick that up, but that you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great call. And honestly, I, thank you for making my answer even better. <laughs> you're welcome. All right. That's, now, why, uh, that, that's why this is a co-hosted show. We are we stronger together. This is true. We're like the Eternals. There you go. Stronger <laughs> together. Except the powers and looks. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. We do we do not have the Marvel blockbuster leading looks. We didn't get the Kumal Nanjiani workout regimen. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the implications of both post-credit scenes because to me, I, I really thought these were exciting. They were fun, particularly for deep dive nerds like us. Now I haven't uh, seen these. They I was in the screenings that they didn't show them at. You got screwed. Yeah. <laughs> so it for the like first it. one, this this kind of like elf or troll looking guy whose name is Poe, I'm 99% no, it's sure. Pip, was, I think. Pip. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was voiced by Patton Oswald. I could be incorrect, but that's what I heard. Uh, he introduces Harry Styles as Eros, AKA Star Fox, who is Thanos's brother. He's an eternal. Thanos is kind of basically a mutant eternal, seemingly a good guy. And he's like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to help you guys out. We got a lot of business to, uh, to who work does he together. say this to? He, so he says this to everyone who's on the ship. So uh, it, gotcha. is it was Druig, the deaf Cersei, one. Yes. And uh, who else was on the ship? I don't or was know. it just those three? I don't know. So it might, it might have just been those three. And he's basically like, you know, we, we got to work together on some, some important stuff that's going on in the universe. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, from what I know, you know, talking to really deep comic book people, Star Fox is meant to be a good guy, though someone told me. His power in the comic is basically that he can seduce anyone. So I, I'm sure. <laughs> wow, great casting that. again, though. It, yeah, I'm sure they're going to change that in the MCU. But I'm I'm super curious. You know, where was he during the Infinity Saga? Uh, can he shed any insight on the kind of so societal upbringings on Titan, where Thanos grew up, that ultimately was destroyed? You know, his appearance also opens the door for us to meet more Eternals and. And also but, opens the door for us to have more insight into the cosmic hierarchy, which is growing ever increasingly con uh, convoluted, which is very interesting. To now, me. does he look like Harry Styles? He looks like gorgeous Harry Styles. Oh, okay. Okay. I was and like, he comes so in in like beautiful Eternals armor. Like the guy looks like the fucking man when he shows so up. He's not, so he's not purple. No, because that, that's what they made Thanos like a mutant Eternal slash like kind of deviant. He has okay. some 
some genetic thing or, or something. Yeah, I can't remember what the, what the comic guy explained to me. If you guys want to yell at us at Pod about what the answer is, go for it. So I, I thought that was cool because it opens the door for more answers into very interesting questions and implications for the MCU cosmic side. Plus, you don't cast that kid as a bad guy. It's just not, it's just not, yeah. And, you know, listen, an army of Eternals would be very dangerous out there. Absolutely. If used for the wrong purposes, if used for the good purposes, they could still be dangerous because good Especially if they're often... all that fucking handsome. Forget yeah. about it. No one will stand. <laughs> They'll be like, fine, take our planet. What the hell do I care? <laughs> now, in the, the second post-credit scene, Dane Whitman, he is seen opening a chest that contains the family sword. He's very apprehensive about picking it up. He's got he's to psych himself up. He's like, you can do this. You can do this. He's very scared. Very scared. And he goes to reach for it. And then you hear off screen Mahershala Ali's voice, who plays Blade. Are you sure you're up for that, Mr. Whitman? So that is really cool. Suggests that Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman slash upcoming Black Knight may be in the Blade solo movie, which is a very unique pairing. And then here's some interesting feedback that I got you know, from comic readers and my own research. In the comics, the Ebony Blade, which is his family sword, it is actually a symbiote. It oh. is, yeah, and it even though the Black Knight is, you know, doing good stuff, it demands blood. So there are there's a lot of murder surrounding the Black Knight because that's what the the Ebony Blade comes at a price. So I think that's really interesting, uh, and I'm very interested to see potentially because it's a symbiote and the sh- the sword has a kind of bubbling black goo on it. Oh. I'm wondering if they are making a very direct bridge to Venom now that we know he's been transported into the MCU. Now, from what I understand, I think the process of touching the sword is what turns him into the Black Knight. Yeah. Now, a question. Is Blade's voice, is it implied that he's in the room with him or he's just like hearing it in the cosmos? I don't know because we don't see whoever says it. We know it's Blade because Mahershala has got that silky, buttery voice. Right. Can't be anybody else. But I, I mean, I would assume he's in the room, but I, I can't say that for sure. But that was the implication I got. He's probably like in, you know, emerging from the corner. Right. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. That is how you do a post credit scene. But that is also entirely why I think the Dane Whitman character would have been better served to not be in the film at all, because they clearly just put him in there just so they could get to that post credit scene. You know, it's yeah, means it, it, it's means to an end, but they didn't give a fuck about the means. They were just like, get us to the end as soon as possible. Yes, so, like I would have just rather that lines. arc unfolded in his own show. Also, just, you know, why isn't Mahershala Ali just there? Why is it a voice? Yeah, let's get Blade going already. Yeah. He, dude, right, before, dude's in his late 40s. We got to get this show on the road, man. Gotta get, though I guess vampires don't age. Uh-huh, or at least age true. slower. True. Uh, all right, before we get into our Don Lee interview, let's do a quick, fun little game and Marvel auction roster. Now, you have seen this across Twitter and Instagram. I'm sure we are borrowing ours from Entertainment Weekly, which basically challenged audiences, this was a few months ago, to build the best MCU character roster with a $15 budget. And I'm about to run through the available characters and their prices, all right? So at $5, we got Captain America, Iron Man, Black Widow, Thor, Hulk. At $4, Hawkeye, Spider-Man, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, Black Panther. $3, Loki, Wasp, Star-Lord, Gamora, Groot. $2, Rocket, Drax, Nebula, Happy, Scarlet Witch. And $1, Vision, Quicksilver, Falcon, Bucky, and War Machine. Now, before we dive into our rosters, 
I'm just going to say it. Vision, Scarlet Witch are hilariously undervalued, while I think Black, Vid- Black Widow, Cap, and Iron Man are hilariously overvalued. Yeah, the but pricing you can blame Entertainment make- Weekly. Yeah, the pricing makes no sense here. But no, it's, okay. it's, not, it's not good. But I, I have constructed my roster, and I want to see what, what you do with yours. Here's my team dynamic. I am going with Thor, five bucks. He is our heavy hitter, big gun. As we saw in Ragnarok, Thor would have won the fight with Hulk had it not been to the Grandmaster electrocuting him. So in this instance, he's kind of our Superman. You know, he packs the biggest punch for a physical confrontation. With no hammer, too. Yeah, with no hammer or axe or, or whatever weapon he's got going on now. Now for four bucks, I'm going with Doctor Strange because as we know, not all threats are physical. Some are interdimensional and for all of Thor's power, you know, what's he going to do, Eric? Is he going to punch an ethereal entity in the face? Fucking thing doesn't have a face. What are you going to do, Thor? So Doctor Strange, you know, despite his recent lapses in judgments that we've covered on this pod, he's got knowledge and abilities that traverse the multiverse. So he is both an intellectual asset as well as a physical one. You know, his mastery of time, it enables us to potentially fix certain earthbound calamities. So he covers a very specific niche. At three bucks, you can make a case for Groot, but I'm going with Loki, particularly a Ragnarok Endgame Loki TV series Loki, because he's a very effective utility player, you know? He's not powerful enough to be the star of the team, but through both cunning and guile and magical know-how, he could be a, he could be a subtle asset, you know? Use him for infiltration, manipulation, and lower tier muscle. So I, I think he serves a very specific purpose that gives us a little versatility. At two bucks, again, hilariously undervalued. I'm obviously going with Scarlet Witch. She can warp reality to her liking, all right? She boasts untapped potential. She's growing stronger throughout the course of her MCU appearances. So imagine deploying her for like a destabilization of enemy forces or or whatever, you know? Rome fell within, a, Rome fell from within. And she's the sort of catalyst that can lay waste to empires or martial ar- armies, you know? They deployed her very well against the Avengers, in Ultron. And I think using that on our team, it's very effective. Uh, and then lastly, $1, again, undervalued. I'm going with Vision, you know, a sentient, logical computer with a strong grasp of emotions. He is the ideal quarterback of sorts. So I, I kind of liken it to the animated Justice League Unlimited series when Martian Manhunter became the de facto coordinator for the entire league. You know, he was the guy organizing which heroes were needed where and allocating resources as his intellect saw fit. So I think Vision could spearhead this team's HQ from a tactical perspective. And it also helps that he's an immense physical power on his own. So that would be my five, five-man five team. Vision, Scarlet Witch, Loki, Doctor Strange, Thor. Eric, can you beat it? Well, I think in terms of building the most powerful team, I think you've done the correct way of doing it. Like, I think that they almost designed it just so people would chart out that five-man team because that is how you would do it if you wanted to win a battle, per se. So I am going to instead build my team based on being a good hang and and who <laughs> I would want to... also important for Avengers Tower social events. And who I would want to party with. So for $5, Iron Man. <laughs> quickly, how quickly we forget that in Iron Man 1, he bring strippers on his private plane back when paramount owned the series my man can provide the whole party he'll he'll bring he'll bring the booze he'll bring the venue he'll bring the girls right four i'm going with ant-man for uh sorry four dollars yeah ant-man scott lang is a motherfucking criminal he could get those drug connects like nobody else okay well he knows where to find the good shit three dollars gamora because i'm trying to hit that no i'm just kidding (laughs) three dollars 
Star-Lord, because my man's got the music, right? He'll be the DJ. He's got the mixtape ready to plug into the aux cord. Give okay? Pierre you, Quill the aux cord. I love it. And you got to have somebody committed to being the DJ, right? Number two, Rocket. Also, sort of like Ant-Man, he's a criminal, but in space. So he could get you that space drug, that spice. Maybe a little. He's the wild card. Maybe a little bit of, you know, experimentation with some kind of substance that's not even from this galaxy. Who knows? <laughs> and then $1, Falcon, just because Buck, um, uh, what the hell is his name? Falcon's name. Uh, Sa- Sam, Sam, Sam Wilson. Wilson. Sam Wilson just seems like a good dude. And you need somebody who, if things get a little bit hairy, to have your back and make sure you get home safe or don't do something stupid. So that's why Sam is coming with me. So I've got Iron Man for $5. Ant-Man for $4, Star-Lord for $3, Rocket for $2, and Falcon for $1 for, for my all-Avengers party team. I love the approach you took. Who would be the coolest hang? I mean, just, just a great a great uh, uh, organizing principle to this little game. Well, because in terms of powerful, I mean, you fucking nailed it. There's no real... The only right. one that you can maybe argue is that at $3... Maybe since you already have a cosmic power in Doctor Strange, take Groot because when yeah. he was a fully formed Groot, that motherfucker was a brute. So, absolutely. All right. Well, guys, what would you do with that setup, with that $15 budget? Let us know at Postgred Pod, at Eric Italiano, at great underscore Caspi. Make sure to leave us a five star review. But first, listen to Eric's great interview with Don Lee, who's going to get into some of the Gilgamesh corners of Eternals. Folks, today we are joined by Don Lee, the excellent actor who plays Gilgamesh in a little film called Eternals. You may also know him from an, a zombie film called Train to Busan. How are you today, sir? And thank you Good. for joining us. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you. So I actually felt this way before I knew that I was going to talk to you. So I promise I really feel this way. I felt that your character was the most universally well-liked among the team. Oh, really? Well, thank you. Yeah, I just feel like they all generally had the most kind feelings towards him. Mm. Was that something that was written into the script or was your performance just that good? Well, we kind of discussed that with Chloe and then she wanted uh, she wanted to put my actual personality in the character. And then she won uh, and also uh, my from my previous work. So he built up based on my, uh, actually me. So. Yeah, I was I was attached to the character right away, and uh, so uh, I think I think uh, Gilgamesh is so similar to me. Uh, that's what I thought, and then we we Chloe and I we always discuss about that, and then so we have a three dimensional character that we uh, he's fun loving, and then also same also same time. Uh, he's a he's a very strong fighter, yeah. And then we he built a character like that. Did she say so? Was the character written with you in mind? Yeah. Well, bef- I mean, she after uh, I got this role, she uh, changed a little bit. She changed this role to uh, my character a little bit. Gotcha. So, uh, gotcha. That's yeah. awesome. So I I actually saw you describe. Gilgamesh as a protector. Walk me through the process of getting in the headspace of that sort of character, a character tasked with being a protector amongst gods. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's the he's he's a protector of uh, his eternal family. At the same time, he's a protector of Bina and humans. Uh, that's what he's made of. Talk to me about working so closely with Angelina Jolie. This is your first Hollywood project, and yep. here you are sharing legitimately emotional scenes with one of the most iconic American actors of my lifetime. Yep. What went through your mind that first day shooting together, and what was that experience like as a whole? Yeah, I mean, she. Um, I was a big fan of her, and then uh, she's the uh, she's the goddess of action film, you know, and then. And the first time I met her, I, uh, I was so, uh, it was so grateful. And then I was so excited. And then we, we uh, I felt like we were old friends, finally got to work together. Hmm. It was so comfortable. And then she, we kind of look out for each other on set and off the set. So we care. So we were like real family. Yeah, we, yeah. we became a good friend. So we, and then we have some kind of connection uh to each other because of uh because we we already been through a lot of action films so when mm -hmm. we two have have we had to do a lot of action together sometime uh separately mm -hmm. but uh, we have some kind of uh just kind of have we had a some kind of connection to each other a bond yeah a bond yeah yes and that yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. can Yep. And that definitely came through in the film. I thought that the bond between those two was one of the film's most heartfelt parts. Right. Um, right. What do Eternals and Gilgamesh in particular bring to the comic book movie world that hasn't been done yet? I got to say uh, the uh, Eternal is uh, most international and diverse cast of the uh, superheroes. And we each have a unique superpower. And then... But we are more powerful when we are when we are together. Mm -hmm. So this shows uh, that no matter what gender or uh, race, uh, we are uh, we are stronger together. That's the strong message for this movie. And then uh, this whole diverse cast uh, from uh, every part of the world. And then this uh, this is gonna be uh, this is the way it should be for global contents. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that actually uh, sort of leads me to what I was going to ask next. What do you think that audiences and humanity in general can learn from this film? Yeah, that that's the uh, I, what I just said. Was right. Exactly. Important thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I said, this is your first Hollywood project and it's pretty much as big as you could go. I mean, Marvel's yeah. the top dog these days. Do you remember your reaction when you got the call that you found out that Marvel Studios wanted you? to have a role in this film? And can you walk me through how you felt that day? Yeah, Sarah Finn, the wonderful casting director for Marvel, I thought she was kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then she called me with this role, or role of Gilgamesh. And then I had a Zoom call with Chloe Zhao. And then I was a big fan of Chloe from uh, her previous work. Uh, it's called uh, the, uh, the writer, the writer. And then... Mm -hmm. And then I couldn't believe it. But uh, one other thing is I had to keep the secret for so long. So I, I couldn't even tell my family. Wow. Yeah. So uh, so that was like hard time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was happy afterwards. And then now I'm so happy. My uh, 
Eternals. I mean, this movie's so great. I love it. And then, absolutely. Yeah, I was so happy about it. And then, but still, I had to still keep the secret first. Uh, some of those uh, spoilers. Your own family. You've got a life changing role coming up, and you can't even tell them. That's amazing. Well, Don, congratulations on the film. I genuinely mean when you and your character were fantastic and one of my favorite parts. I hope to see you in more projects on this side of the world. If not, I will look up your work on your side. Everyone, make sure to check out Eternals on November 5th. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, Don. All right, that'll do it for us here on Postcred Pod. Thank you guys for listening. Eric, what do we got uh, coming up next week? Red Notice, I guess, is the big release next week. So maybe we'll, we'll do something about The Rock or Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. And then upcoming, we got you know King Richard later this year, Will Smith's big Oscar play. Hawkeye this month. Yeah, Ghostbusters Afterlife potentially, uh, Hawkeye. So uh, a lot of fun things on the horizon. I'm excited to hit them. All right, brother. Talk to you later. Take it easy. All right, y'all. Peace. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 